Holy Scriptures, first from the Old Testament, Genesis 2.23. Then the man said, This, at last, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Then from the New Testament, Romans 13.8-10. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is fulfilling the law. Father, we come to you truly with empty hands seeking to be taught by you. This command to love is the most transformative thing you tell us in your scriptures. That this is the way in which we are called to live. Not just in the estate of marriage, but in friendship, in relationship to people all around us. It's a challenge this morning, Lord, for us to be able to take this seriously. So what we pray is for you to teach us everything that you would have us know about what it means to truly love those to whom we're married, those who are our neighbors, and even those who may be our enemies. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, John Harrell recently took out a $20,000 loan for his wedding. He wrote an article about it detailing the different things that he ended up spending the $20,000 on. But in the end, as he's describing uh, what happened in his wedding, you discover that John married himself. It's a $20,000 loan to marry himself. What he wanted to do was to practice a radical form of self-love. And as he talked about the reason, the decision that he made about getting married to himself, he said this about dating. He said, I had gone on countless dates and received loads of feedback on why I was inadequate. This was his experience in seeking someone else. And so his solution was to say, I am the only suitable, true companion for myself. So it seems reasonable, but many of us, as we start to dig into the subject of marriage and friendship, We look at it and we may think, those of us who are married, well, that's not how you get married. That's not how you do marriage. And the problem, speaking as somebody who is married and speaking as somebody who has observed many marriages, the problem is that many of us who are married are not much more married than James Harrell is married. Many of us, as we pursue marriage, whether we're married now or we just want to be married, are chasing after the hope of marrying ourselves. And this is like, this is not really related much to anything except a statistic that blew my mind, that in America, we spend $53 billion every year getting married and $28 billion getting divorced on a yearly basis. It's just a lot of money. So you think about what happens and the challenge of this, you know, this is, this is uh, yet another reflection on Genesis 1-11. through 11, And our goal is, this week and next week, to take God's command 
related to marriage and to see how it creates culture in the world and how it relates to all of us, married and unmarried alike. So as you think about how marriage works and maybe the struggle of marriage is that it it kind of it escapes orbit and floats around. You know, you imagine the old Apollo missions and you see them you, you see them leaving the launch pad and they've got these solid rocket boosters propelling them higher. And that's like the dating process, you know? You are together, man. You're interested in each other. You have direction. The direction is get closer. So the booster rockets push you up against gravity. You have mission, purpose. And then they detach as you enter orbit. And then you just kind of float around, you know? Who knows what happens next? Things are just floating. You know, you ever see those pictures of astronauts? They don't look heroic in zero gravity, do they? They're just kind of floating around. They're doing things very slowly. In general, this is the experience of many people as they enter into marriage. What is it that God has for us in marriage that should make us seek marriage, but should also make us practice marriage differently? So as we think about this, I want to just give you one thing from the very beginning, which is to say this. Marriage not only is something, but it does something. That marriage, as God gives it to us, does something. Marriage addresses something fundamental in us as human beings. In our world, loneliness is epidemic. Everyone's looking to be less lonely. Every movie you watch, every romantic notion of marriage is born out of this idea that if you get married, you'll no longer be lonely. Now, you can talk to a married person, who hopefully has been married long enough to recognize this, that marriage itself does not remove loneliness. And God doesn't give us marriage in order to remove loneliness. To deal with loneliness, you need something far deeper at work in your heart. You can be married and lonely. God gives us marriage to deal not with our loneliness, but with our aloneness. Which is something that some of us crave all the time, and some of us just some of the time, but all of us at least a part of the time, right? To be alone. To be alone. So let's understand what God does first of all. God himself, you know, like he, he, doesn't, he, he does not exist as an alone deity. He is a trinity. He's triune. There are multiple persons in the Trinity, right? He doesn't exist by himself. He's in perfect relationship and community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So for us, the aching that you may have to be in deep relationship is in part the image of God in you. You were made to be in deep relationship. That needs to color the way that we approach not just marriage, not just marriage, but singleness. God has created marriage as a way to move us from aloneness and away from self-centeredness and self-serving into something else. Just by way of reminder, um, you know, to let you know, if you have a question, please feel free to send those during the sermon, uh, to text those during the sermon. I'll answer them anonymously afterward for about five to seven minutes. So God uses marriage to create culture. This is what he's doing. He's trying to create something different. He's using marriage as an incubator to produce not just faithful children. That's not just the only aim, right? It's possible to be married the way God calls us to be married without having kids. But also as a way of relating. 
to one another. He's trying to create a new way of relating. In describing marriage in the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul in chapter 5 says that husbands should love their wives because no one ever hated their own flesh. So you start to wonder, what is he trying to say here? What does he mean no one ever hated their own flesh? Well, we see where this comes from if we dive back into the book of Genesis. We just heard it read to us from chapter 2. This is how we begin to understand why God gives this institution of marriage, this creation mandate. Going back to this from Genesis 2.23, Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So he looks at her. This is the first recorded love song, right? We've talked about this before. This is the first Al Green recording, right? Adam sees Eve. And for the first time, he says, wow, you are not me. You are not me. You are someone else. You're another person. Now, he doesn't mean, now we take this, you know, we kind of romanticize it and say, oh, what Adam's doing is he's looking and he's saying, you This is not what he's saying, okay? What he's saying is, here at last is someone to whom I can give my Adamness. Before, I looked and I had animals, and they were fine, but to them, all I could give was my expertise, okay? My ability to name things. That's all I could do. I could give them that. But here comes this human being. And now, when God establishes marriage, we have the ability to give not only our skills, our work, our expertise, but ourselves. Self-giving is the heart of this first marriage. Is self-giving, those of you who are married, the heart of your marriage? Is self-giving, those of you who are in deep relationship, who have very good and helpful and long-lasting friendships, self-giving the heart of those relationships. We have to get out of this kind of harlequin view of marriage and romance, okay? And to help you do that, I'm going to give you some real stomach turners about uh, the difference between what a truly beautiful biblical view of marriage is and what we tend to hear in the world. Here are two that, I mean, they just drive me crazy. Okay, Here's the romantic view of really finding your other person. I'm not going to tell you who wrote them. It wasn't me, but I'm not going to tell you who wrote them. I'm nothing special of this, I am sure. I am a common man with common thoughts, and I've led a common life. There are no monuments dedicated to me, and my name will soon be forgotten. But I've loved another with my whole heart and soul, and to me, this has always been enough. Come on. That is not marriage, true love. That is not really... This one's even better. Love is like the wind. You can't see it, but you can feel it. Yeah, you can feel it, right? You can feel it when you get married and the person that you're married to has the stomach flu, right? And you may not hear it in, in your ears blowing like the wind, but you will smell it, right? This is what it is like to be in relationship with someone to whom you give yourself. For Adam, seeing another person was caused to celebrate the possibility of self-giving love what he's excited about. That's what it's about. The deficiency of Adam's aloneness 
was that he had no opportunity to give his whole self to someone else. That's why it was not good that man should be alone. The goal of marriage is simple. Taking what we've seen here in Genesis chapter 2, love thy neighbor as yourself. The goal of marriage. Love your neighbor as yourself. How far have we fallen in marriage? Where we've started to create this idea, where we've lived in this idea that marriage is about completing ourselves. When we feel it's okay to not give ourselves to the other person until they deserve it. To live like teammates, right? To give 50-50. I give 50%, they give 50%. When they don't give 50%, I don't give 50%. This is not marriage. This is not self-giving. What about the TV marriage? Which includes, by the way, two generally two characters. One person who's an imbecile, typically the husband, right? And one person who is nagging and annoying, who is typically the wife. And then they kind of get together and they have this marriage and from time to time they kind of shrug. Well, that's the way it is, right? And you're just supposed to say, well, this is, yeah, that's true. That's the way it is. The reason why this is such a popular view in our culture is because we've bought into this idea that marriage is a thing you survive And in general, if you really want to have companionship, if you really want to give someone, give yourself to someone, you find a group of friends outside of your marriage to do that. Or you find some other marriage. This is missing the point. God creates marriage to cultivate self-giving love. This can be applied across the board to people who are married and people who are not married. So don't persecute each other. Those of you who are married, those of you who are thinking about getting married, don't persecute the other person with these unbiblical views of marriage. With the idea that they're going to take away every bit of your loneliness. With the idea that somehow they are made and put on earth to complete you. As if your goal is just to receive from them. Don't persecute this other person for not meeting these crazy, romantic, unrealistic, and unbiblical views of marriage. So let's see what the Lord would have us do with it. Look, you know, I've been, uh, I've been married 10 years. I'm sorry, I've been married 20 years. 10 of those years is what I was going to say. Ugh. Good. Lord's not in here. I was married 20 years. I've been married 20 years. The first 10 years uh, were spent fighting with each other. And against each other. It took us 10 years to figure out how to fight for each other. And I'm a pastor. And my wife is totally awesome. It's just hard. But as you, as you kind of grow into this understanding of what marriage looks like as this self-giving gift, it's a beautiful thing. Genesis 2 tells us something we need to hear about marriage. This is going to get on all your bumper stickers. Marriage is not for you. You might have thought that, like, oh man, maybe marriage is not for me, right? But I'm here to tell you, marriage actually isn't for you, right? It's not for you, okay? And what I mean by that is that it has another purpose besides making you full, okay? It's a gift for your good, but it's not for you. It's not created just for you. The biblical ethic of marriage, it actually ripples out into all human relationships. When the prophet Isaiah calls God's people to repentance... For their lack of love to the poor, or for the poor, he uses the same language we just heard in Genesis 2. You might think it's just this husband and wife thing. It's not. In uh, Isaiah 58, 6 and 7, he says this. 
Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him? And look at this, not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Marriage is created for the purpose of producing love in the world. Giving us a sign that it's possible. Giving us an exemplar with which to live the rest of our lives. Even the way in which we deal with those who cannot give us anything, right? For the person who is so struggling that all we can give them is justice, mercy, equity, kindness. And they have nothing to give us in return. That person is our own flesh, according to the Scriptures. This is an echo of Genesis chapter 2. Jesus embodies love by this example. He gives up His own rights in order to love others. This is what Jesus does. So it's not just for marriage, but for people in every estate. Love is the meaning and mission of marriage, but it has to be lived out across the board. Love. This is what this is about. So if you're struggling, if you want to be alone, if you don't want to be bothered, by the need to give yourself away to other people. You're not antisocial. Well, you're not just antisocial. You're unbiblical. You have a theological issue. You may also have an issue that requires counseling, and that's okay. But you also have a theological issue. If you think it's okay, if you think God does not demand of us, that kind of relationship to the people around us. We're missing something. Self-serving aloneness. It, it, it is the greatest enemy of both marriage and singleness. This isn't just a marriage thing. To be married in a way that pleases God, to be single in a way that pleases God, requires self-giving love. Now, during the Memphis sanitation strike in 1968, uh, the Reverend James Lawson he addressed uh, these uh, black strikers who were, they were striking in part due to the fact that uh, a couple of their own brothers in sanitation had been crushed in compactors. No one seemed to care. They weren't making nearly as much as their white counterparts, and so they went on strike. And the Reverend James Lawson, in addressing them after they had been uh, beaten and pushed around uh, by police and others, he said this. He said, At the heart of racism is the idea that a man is not a man, that a person is not a person. You are human beings. You are men. You deserve dignity. That was the inspiration for the signs that began to show up in civil rights marches that said, I am a man. That's a strong echo of Genesis 2.23. God's intent for marriage is that it shapes to the core the way in which we relate to one another and the systems at work in our world. Those signs, I am a man, they were trying to call out of us that very primal and God-given response that this person is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. That's marriage at work in the world producing culture. Your marriage should drive you toward Welcoming others. It ought to drive you 
toward an understanding of unity and community. You ought to be drawn in part to justice and mercy and equity because you are marriage material. You've learned this is what marriage is. This is what love is. So wisdom and skill in marriage, if you want to build that wisdom and that skill of being married well, then I think you must work for those things outside your marriage. You have to work to be married well to the world of people outside your marriage that need you deeply. It cultivates the skill of relationship and friendship that will bless your marriage. So it's not a small thing. It's not an additional thing we do. It's part of being a human being in God's world. And by it, we become better at stuff like marriage and friendship. So, aim at the love of your neighbor. Application. Aim at the love of your neighbor if you want to meet the target of loving your husband. And I mean, even if your husband's really hard to love. Okay? Super hard to love. Like, I don't know what that's like, for one thing, because I'm a pastor, and my marriage is an example to all, obviously. But those of you who may have husbands that are less than perfect, and you may have to struggle with this, aim at loving your neighbor. It will help you to love your husband. Or wife. It goes both ways. So. If you can't see that in the other person, the other, the slave, the immigrant, the person who cuts you off in traffic, the person who doesn't know how to use a roundabout, the person, the family member that always brings drama, the person who makes you late, if you can't see that this person is bone of your bones and flesh of your flesh, then you won't see it in marriage either. Here's the secret. Getting married... For those of you who aren't married and those of you who are married who are wondering what's going on, okay? Let me just tell you. Getting married will not instantly make you a self-giving, loving person. You may think it's pronounced, right, with the wedding. You know, hey, I now make you husband and wife. Now you're really going to do this well. It's not how it works. Jesus has to be at work in us. Jesus has to transform what goes on at the heart of who we are. To make us the kind of people who can live like this. The Bible is calling us to produce and pursue good works of self-giving as the ethic of Christian marriage. Christian marriage looks like good works of self-giving. For those who are married, it means in your marriage you have to seek to do good for one another without indebting one another. It can't be a good work of self-giving if by doing good for one another you now make them debtors to you. Putting away scorekeeping is a primary calling of marriage. Are you good at keeping score in your marriage or in your friendships and your relationships? Can you do something in your spouse or friend and you're like, three months ago, I did take out the trash without being asked, right? If you can do something, the other person says, you're a good friend. He says, listen, I remember eight years ago when you forgot to give me my birthday present on time. You always forget. Right? Whatever this is, whatever the score you're keeping is that we do, if you are filled with Christ, if the Spirit of God is in you, if you are called to follow Jesus, then it will put away scorekeeping. Galatians 5 says it this way For you are called to freedom, brothers. Not just your freedom, but other people in your life are called to freedom too. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then picking back up on Romans chapter 13, which is right here in your worship folder if you need to see it, just hearing this one more time, you owe no one anything except to love one another. 
that is your debt. To love one another. If you if love love does no wrong to a neighbor, it says at the end in verse ten. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the of the law. This means that here's what you're going to do. Those of you who are married or in deep friendships and you're struggling with this, you have to destroy the concept of making deposits for later withdrawals. Okay. Now, some of you know what we mean by that. If I do this, it will make it easier for me to do this later. Okay. Did any of you play with uh, a can of snakes? Because this is just my twisted childhood. Can of snakes, anyone? Raise your hand if you remember can of snakes. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Can of snakes, right? Can of snakes, here's what it was. You'd get a, you'd get a can. There was a can. And the can would say something like peanuts. You're like, oh, good, peanuts, right? And then you'd open the can of peanuts and snakes would jump out. Spring-loaded snakes. They'd jump out. It was terrible. It was terrifying. And I think it was uh, one of my least favorite relatives who introduced me to can of snakes. But... As you have can of snakes, right? What, what would happen is, you know, you would your good works are like the can of snakes for the person that you serve. On the outside, it says, "Here you go. I washed all the dishes you left in the sink." Wow. On the inside, it's spring loaded with, "I will now destroy you if you get mad at me for leaving anything around the house." That is not a good deed. It's not a good deed. It's not a good deed self-giving love. It's manipulation. It's cruelty. Some of you live in this relationship right now where all of your actions are scorekeeping involved and all the ways you seek to love one another and debt each other. You're always this close to some spring-loaded wrath keeping accounts all the time. Some of us have experienced that on a, a grander scale. You know, you've, you've seen what it's like. You have a family member who you, you can't accept their gifts or their kindness because you know it always has very intense strings attached. Some of you have been in Christian communities that saddled you with guilt for not living up to whatever the standard was that they were building for you. And their kindness to you indebted you to them and you could never quite be good enough to be on good terms in that community. In Christ, you are never pursuing good works in order to earn favor from people or from God. Christian love does not indebt others. Christian love does not indebt others. In your relationships, in your marriage, in your parenthood, cannot indebt people through acts of good works. There's a world of people who are waiting and hoping to be loved and accepted without strings. You have a chance to answer that as Christians. To love people without strings attached. Practice good works by making your good works entirely free of cost. Practice these principles of marriage by making your good works entirely free of cost for the people to whom you serve. Okay? Keep no tabs. Practice this wisdom. Practice this way of living. Paul the Apostle, he says, he would, he would rather that people be like him, unmarried, and serve the Lord. Why? Because there's a lot of work to be done. Right? 
Some of you may struggle with a, a, a sermon series that touches on marriage because you feel like it doesn't, it doesn't include you. You are set on the outside. But let me say this. These principles of marriage touch everywhere. They touch people in every stage of life. And the Apostle Paul himself says that, look, you can be fully dignified and not be married. You can be fully holy and righteous and valuable and not be married. So hear me say this. You are every bit dignified, beloved, gifted, vital people of God. Even if you're not married. Here's some application things we just want to talk about for a minute. So as you struggle through this, as you think about this, whether you're married or not married, think about this in your marriage in particular. First, when you're performing your good work, okay, whatever this is, you, you, you decide, I'm going to serve this person this way. First, check your heart. Ask the question, what happens if I'm not thanked for this? That's always a good thing to ask about, just to internally to think about, what happens if this person does not respond the way that I want them to, to this thing that I did? If your answer is, oh, I'm going to let them have it, this is not a good work. Retreat. Go backwards. Start over, right? So ask that question. What happens if I'm not thanked for this? So be aware of the debt that you're giving another person and acknowledge its wrongness. Just acknowledge that it's wrong. Second, stop keeping score, not only for someone else, but also for yourself. Sever your good work from your job performance as a human being. Right? If you start, right? Here's a clue. If you start thinking things like, man, I'm really good. I do good things. I'm a great husband or wife. You are off track. Retreat. Start over again. Recognize that you are valuable in Christ regardless of your performance. Do not live to be the good works dispenser in your relationship. These things don't make you better, right? Here's the third thing. Eliminate the following formula. How could you, after I, whatever, okay? Whatever that is. How could you, after I, have the notes been up here? The whole time? Okay, I'm just making sure. I'm just making sure because I was going to freak out if they weren't. No, they're, they're here. Okay, good. Because last week I, I put them in the wrong place and that was my fault. So I was just making sure. All right. Uh, how could you, after I blank, 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 whatever that thing is, after I did this, after I did this, after I whatever, that's never a good sentence. How could you, after I whatever, unless, how could you love me after I was such a jerk? Okay, that's okay. How could you blank after I blank? Not good. Let's eliminate that. In the church, we present you with all kinds of ways to practice this stuff. One way in which we make it difficult is when we kind of segregate the communities into singles and marrieds people, you know. Um, each denies the other person opportunity for real relationship. So the church has to be integrated well. So one thing that we hope that happens as a result of a truly biblical view of marriage as God gives it is that there are no, we've said this before, there are no single family households, okay? If you follow the history of Christendom, from the very beginning there was, a, there was an unusual form of, of the household. It included all kinds of people that you would not ordinarily call a part of the household. It included people that you would call your employees. It included people that you would have called outside of your community, racially or culturally or socioeconomically. If the church owns this vision of marriage as something that blesses 
the world with love, then your home cannot be a single family dwelling. It has to welcome all kinds of people to come in and sit on your couches with the plastic covering on them. You know what I mean? To do that. Now, nobody does that. See, that's a dated reference, what we call a dated reference, but I remember it. Anyway, you can invite people into your home. They can experience hospitality there. They can cost you something. It's a biblical view of marriage. A biblical view of marriage leads all of us to move from self-serving to self-giving good works to love. So the question is, how is this sustainable? Maybe you went there two minutes into the sermon. How is this sustainable to live this way? How do we do this, right? And it's not easy. Christianity is not easy in this way. It doesn't let us out. It doesn't give us an easy way to handle this. But First John 4 gives us one response to the question, how is this possible? How is this sustainable? This is all that we're given biblically. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Do you see the connection? This is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us. Sent His Son for us. The answer is this. That you are already beloved. You are already married. By whom? By the great bridegroom of Christ. Jesus illustrates Himself as the great bridegroom. He says, I'm the one. I'm the one who comes to you as the bridegroom. I'm the one that comes to you and marries you and declares that you are mine. He sees in us someone like Adam that needed his personhood, his everything. He sees in us an opportunity to give his very self to us. So that you and I can live out this call to self-giving love in all of life. It has to come from the gospel. It can't go from anywhere else. It can't go from politeness. It can't go from social learning. It has to be from the gospel. So many of you later on today, you're going to be sitting in a normal, you know, kind of aloneness loop, you know? You maybe you're in maybe you're in a marriage that is just cut off communication whatsoever. There's no intimacy, there's no connection, there's no communication. And your friends are people that you meet on the internet. Your friends are the television shows that you're streaming. And you're protecting yourself. You're you're hunkering down into yourself. I want to encourage you this way. Believe the gospel. Dig into the truth of the gospel. Over and over again. Be a part of a community that does that. And the second thing is this. Love people. This is the application. Love people. As you struggle with this kind of way that God's called you to live, invest in self-giving love for other people. That work transforms us. God uses it to change us. Love is the unique contribution of Christianity to the world. This kind of love. I want to read to you just one uh, definition of it as we close. Uh, Frederick Buechner puts it this way. He says, The love for equals is a human thing. Friend for friend, brother for brother. It is to love what is loving and lovely. The world smiles. The love for the less fortunate 
is a beautiful thing. The love for those who suffer, for those who are poor, the sick, the failures, the unlovely, this is compassion and touches the heart of the world. The love for the more fortunate is a rare thing. To love those who succeed where we fail, to rejoice without envy with those who rejoice, the love of the poor for the rich, the world is always bewildered by its faith. And then there is the love for the enemy. Love for the one who does not love you, but mocks, threatens, and inflicts pain. The tortured's love for the torturer. This is God's love that conquers the world. It's my encouragement to you. As we work through the difficulty of loving the way that God has called us to love in marriage and outside of marriage, you have a partner. You have someone who has gone before you to love that way. In your difficult marriage and your difficult friendship, you have somebody who has gone before you to love cross-culturally, to love in ways you could not imagine loving. And He has loved you so that you can love that way. He'll not leave you alone. He'll give you the strength that you need. Let me pray for us.